Yes, uh, keep your Bibles open there in chapter six. Thanks for reading, Charles. Um, it's it's always heavy going reading the prophets. Uh, there's not a lot of good news for Israel, uh, and yet uh, it's a word that they needed. It's a word that they needed if they are going to be in right relationship with God, and it's a word that we uh, still need to hear today. Uh, but we will see uh, that uh, that God's word always points us to good news. That it always points us where to where good news can be found. Um, you might notice that the uh, the stage up the front there is less crowded uh, this week than it was last week. Uh, that's because Gomer and Hosea have gone off for some marriage counselling, uh, which is great. Uh, they needed it, and um, yeah, hopefully they find it. Uh, but I did bring along uh, a, a an image for myself this morning. Uh, I don't know if you can see that there on the screen. That uh, young couple, about um, what are we up to? 24 years ago or so, uh, getting married. Uh, it's a great reminder to have uh, wedding photos around, isn't it? A reminder of um, promises that you made and, uh, and uh, the steadfast love that should hold uh, a marriage together. And uh, that's certainly really what God is on about. You know, he's on about reminding his people of the covenant that he made with them and that uh, they were brought into with him as well, a covenant of uh, faithfulness, um, but sadly uh, one that Israel has uh, turned its back on. Uh, let's pray and uh, let's jump into this passage. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your love is constant and genuine and that your concern is always for us. Father, thank you for the way that your word testifies to that. You don't only claim to love us, but you love us in action as well. And it's always been true for your people from the very beginning. You have always been the creator and the sustainer and the provider uh, and the lover of your people. We ask that we would see you clearly for who you are today and that uh, as a result, we would be drawn back to you, that we would uh, be drawn to you in repentance and drawn to you in faith, and that our repentance and faith would issue in the love that you deserve as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, last week we ended uh, on a hopeful note. I don't know if you remember at the end uh, there of chapter five. Uh, chapter five ends with the hope that a chastened Israel will earnestly seek the face of God. I'll read the uh, final verse there. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. In other words, uh, God, uh, God looks forward to a future day where Israel will repent. And then chapter 6, as uh, Charles read those first few verses for us, chapter 6 begins with a clear expression of repentance, doesn't it? They're actually beautiful verses. Uh, and at about the halfway mark of the book, those beautiful verses make for welcome reading. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 3 again. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will restore us. 
that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear and he will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. At last, it sounds as if God's plan, his plan of calling his people back and his plan of uh, treating them in a way that uh, helps them understand their uh, faithlessness so that they'll repent and return. It sounds like Israel has come to her senses. Sounds like Israel is ready to turn back to God. They're pretty convincing words, aren't they? I can't think of a better expression of repentance myself. It sounds like Israel have understood themselves and their own hearts. It sounds like they've understood that they have turned away and they need to turn back. It sounds like they know God. It sounds like they know how he's been at work and how he will act if they turn back to him, that they will, that he will welcome them back. But sadly, sadly, as we read on beyond verse 3, uh, something, things fall apart again. So what has happened? Is our verses 1 to 3 a genuine expression of repentance? Well, I think there are two ways uh, to read this passage, and it all depends on who's speaking in verses 1 to 3. Here are the two options. It could be Hosea himself who is speaking, issuing an invitation to the rest of Israel. Could be that Hosea is saying, come on, let's do this. Let's return to the Lord. Let's understand his work among us and let's turn back to him in repentance and in faith and experience the restoration that he promises. That's one possibility. And if that's the case, uh, then I guess the rest, you know, what comes after that, uh, Israel's the description of Israel's ongoing sin is simply more of the same. Another way to read it would be that verses one to three could be the voice of Israel. It could be the voice of the people. It could be them expressing in words uh, repentance. And yet, if that's the case, then what follows is evidence that their repentance is half-hearted. Now. I don't really think there's any way to know for sure whether it is the voice of Hosea or the voice of Israel. And yet there are a few things uh, in the rest of chapter 6 and in chapter 7 and chapter 8 that seem to reveal to me uh, that God is calling Israel out for a half-hearted repentance. And on that basis, I'm going to treat verses 1 to 3 as Israel's voice uh, and um, an expression uh, that they're, you know, of lip service uh, to God. As beautiful as the words are, that they they don't go deep. So let's uh, look at the rest of the passage and see how things unfold as God uh, describes Israel's half-hearted repentance or false repentance. Uh, from verse four of chapter six all the way through uh, the rest of chapter seven we come across seven, what I've called seven sad similes. You know, a simile, remember from primary school, a simile, it's, it's a metaphor. You could even say it's like a metaphor. Something is like something else. Uh, and 
God uses lots of descriptive language. He uses all these sad similes to describe uh, Israel, the shortcomings of Israel's repentance. The first one uh, is there in chapter 6, verse 4, where Israel is described as being, as her love being like a morning mist. What can I do with you, Ephraim? We know whose voice this is, don't we? This is the Lord himself in anguish. What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Uh, You know what it's like? Certain times of the year, the mist and the dew can hang around for a bit in the morning. You go out early and uh, the ground is wet, even though it may not have rained overnight. That's the mist or the morning dew. But God says Israel's repentance is just as fleeting as that dew. An hour later and you walk out and everything's dry as a bone. And remember, this was a a, a Mediterranean climate, so that early morning dew didn't last long at all. That's Israel's love. As soon as temptation comes, her love, if it ever Sorry, I've got Siri awake. (laughs) Her love, uh, if it was ever real, if it ever had any substance, it just vanishes. Uh, And the first thing I think we need to notice here is God's anguish at Israel's um, superficial love. God doesn't want to be a judge. He wants to be a lover. Verse 6, for I desire... Mercy, it's translated here. It's actually love. I desire steadfast love, God says, not sacrifice. That's what God desires. That's his heart. He's not interested in bloody sacrifices and burnt offerings devoid of love. God doesn't want Israel's rituals. He wants their hearts. I mean, just imagine a marriage where, you know, Dinner appeared on the table every night like clockwork at six o'clock, but it was thrown down and there was no love uh, or concern or consideration in the preparation. Just imagine a marriage where uh, the lawn was mown regularly like clockwork every week or every fortnight, depending on the need, and yet uh, it was done with grumbling and complaining That's what God is saying Israel's love is like. They're going through the motions, but it's not real in their hearts. And we've got to ask, are we any better? Is our love just as fleeting? We might gather for church on a Sunday, but then on Monday morning, we leave God behind. We're just going through the motions. We've got to remember God doesn't want the motions. He doesn't want outward observance. He's a God of the heart who wants our hearts. And he wants Israel's heart. But because they won't give him their hearts and because they refuse to genuinely repent, well, God's judgment is about to fall. That's what we read in verse 5. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. And then my judgments go forth like the sun. When God speaks, what he says will happen does happen. As in creation, God says, let there be light, and there is light. So in judgment, when God speaks and says, 
my judgment will fall, so it will. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, maybe God just needs to get over Israel. I mean, if I heard a mate threatening to slay his wife, I'd say, hey, you need to take a step back. But here we've got to get, remember that God isn't just some bloke who's lost his wife. He is God. He's God. And Israel's adultery doesn't just affect God. It's not, it's not just impacting that relationship. Remember uh, from last week, we saw this, that when God's people turn away from him, they turn against each other. So in verse 7, we read, as in the case of Adam or as at Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of evildoers stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. I have seen a horrible thing in Israel, many horrible things. There Ephraim is given to prostitution and Israel is defiled. This is how bad things have got because Israel has forsaken her first love. Her love is short-lived like the morning mist. Uh, The second simile uh, is there in chapter 7, verses 3 to 7. And here Israel's love, or Israel, are likened to being an overheated oven, an overheated oven. Uh, Their sin is all-consuming. It burns them and it burns everything in their path. Chapter 7, verse 3, they delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. They're all adulterers burning like an oven, whose fire the baker needn't stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises on the day of the festival of our king. The princes become inflamed with wine and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smoulders all night in the morning. It blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall and there none of them calls on me. You know, in the time of uh, Hosea, God says that Israel is like an overheated oven fueled by her own sin. And the fire is so hot that Israel is consuming herself. Uh, that references to princes and kings plotting and intrigue there in verses five to seven uh, reflects what was actually happening in the Northern Kingdom. Uh, Four out of the five kings of Hosea's time in the North were assassinated. Four out of five kings of Israel assassinated as uh, one climbed over the top of another uh, to seek power. You know, the reality with sin is that even though at times it can be tempting and seem like it's going to bring a measure of pleasure, the reality is that when we sin, we'll always get burnt. We'll get burnt and the people around us will get burnt uh, from our heat as well, like an overheated oven. And so I want to ask you this morning, where are you playing with fire? Where are you indulging in sin? Where are you giving into temptation? And where are you telling yourself that it doesn't really matter? Where are you telling yourself that no one is being hurt by it? Because it's not true. You are and those around you are. It's always the way. Sure, maybe no one's getting killed, 
but there's a whole lot of damage that can still be done, isn't there? And is done when our love isn't placed in the right place, when we're all heated up about things that don't deserve our love. Uh, the next simile, the third one, uh, Israel is like a half-baked loaf, a half-baked loaf. Uh, just imagine it. Perhaps the oven is at the wrong temperature. I'm not much of a baker, but I think this might be how it works. It's turned up too high, uh, and so it gets all burnt and charred on the outside, and yet on the inside it's still doughy. Uh, and so I think what God is saying here is that Israel is unfit for her purpose. Uh, God says that by refusing to separate herself from the nations, Israel is like a half-baked loaf. Chapter 7, verse 8, Ephraim mixes with the nations a flat loaf not turned over, perhaps burnt on one side and, uh, and still uncooked on the other. See, Israel was meant to be holy. Israel was meant to be set apart for the purpose of God's praise and uh, for the good of the people. And so that the nations around them would see how blessed they were to know God and to have him as their king and want to share in their holiness as well. But things have turned the other way. Rather, by mixing with the nations, uh, Israel has become just like them and she has become useless in the process like a half-baked loaf that you'd crack open and throw in the bin, well, that's what Israel is like. Because she's mixing with the nations, she can't live for the nations. Again, I wonder whether that might sadly, quite accurately describe us, whether the fact that we live in the world, we're meant to live for the world, but the reality is, that we live in the world and so become like the world rather than the impact being from us outward for the good of the world. The impact is so easily inward from the world impacting us and uh, compromising our holiness and our purpose. We've got to understand that this is another terrible consequence of turning away from God, that we lose our purpose and our effectiveness like a half-baked loaf. Uh, the next simile is in the next couple of verses. Israel is described as being like a deluded old man. Now, uh, as I get age uh, older, it's easy to uh, kind of push off the realities of that aging process and think, oh, no, it couldn't happen to me. And yet the reality is that the aches and the pains and the niggles, they all grow, they all gather, don't they? Many of you will know even better than I do what I'm talking about. But the, de the deluded old man is the one who is the last to admit that that's really going on. Everyone else can see it, but he can't. Now, there's a lot to be said for growing old gracefully. Our looks and our strength and our mental abilities, they've all got used by dates, don't they? It might be sad, but it doesn't have to be humiliating unless we refuse to admit it. God says that Israel is just like that. In chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, foreigners sap his strength, but he doesn't realise it. His hair is sprinkled with grey, but he doesn't notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him, but despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him 
it sounds like that Israel, even though she's past her prime, she's trying to relive her glory days back in the days of David and Solomon, but things have changed. She's refusing to admit, refusing to recognize that her strength is gone, that she's actually a has-been because the key ingredient of the glory days is no longer with her. And that is God's favor, God's blessing, uh, because uh, she is faithful to him. Uh, The next sad simile, the fifth one, uh, Israel is like a senseless bird seeking safety in all the wrong places. We've come across this before, that uh, one way that Israel is expressing her faithlessness towards God is by uh, turning to the nations around her to make treaties and try to protect herself. Uh, We read there in verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, so imagine her flitting off to Egypt, and now turning to Assyria in the opposite direction. When they go, I'll throw my net over them. I'll pull them down like the birds in the sky. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. And woe to them because they have strayed from me. God says that Israel is just like a senseless bird, living in fear, and yet rather than turning to her true owner, she turns to her enemies for help. And if she turns to God at all, it's, as a last resort. I wonder, I wonder about you. I wonder about your inclinations. When you find yourself anxious or in difficulty, what's your instinct? Where do you look for help? Do you, do you try to solve the problem yourself with your own resources? Do you, or do you look towards God? That ought to be our inclination, especially when where people who say we've experienced how dependable and reliable and faithful God is, and yet so often the temptation is there to solve our problems some other way. One of the guys uh, in my growth group during the week just put his hand up and said, guilty is charged. And I think really we all could. Uh, the sixth, the second last of these sad similes, and we're almost done, uh, is that Israel is like a pagan prayer. Uh, Someone who prays, yes, but her prayers are not genuine. Rather, she prays in a way that's trying to manipulate God. Verse 14, they do not cry out to me from their hearts, but they wail on their beds. Oh, woe is me. They slash themselves appealing to their gods. So not even praying to the true God, but rather wailing and calling out to false gods. They slash themselves, that's referring to pagan practices, appealing to their gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. And I wonder whether that might be the case for us as well. Even when we do turn to God, even when we do pray, even when we come to the end of our wits and we turn to him as a last resort, is it really, well, is it really God that we're turning to? For Israel, there was plenty of stuff that looked and sounded like prayer, but it actually sounded and looked more like the prayer of the nations than prayer to the Lord. These dramatic displays were attempts to manipulate the gods to give you what you ask for. It's so different, isn't it, to how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, where he said, pray like this, pray, Father. And that's meant to set the tone for our prayer. 
who it is that we're praying to, our Father in heaven, one who knows our needs and who cares for us, who doesn't need to be manipulated because he already loves us. I wonder if even when you pray, you feel like you need to persuade God or convince him of what you need. You really don't. God says he knows your needs before you ask them and he loves to give you what you truly need. The final uh, description of Israel's half-hearted repentance and faulty and uh, dodgy love is that she is like a faulty bow, a faulty bow, a, uh, a bow that's designed for a purpose but doesn't work. Chapter 7, verse 15, I trained them. I trained them, says God, and I strengthened their arms, and yet they plot evil against me. They don't turn to the most high. They are like a faulty bow. And so their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this, they'll be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. The image here, I think, it makes me think of, of like in the movies where um, uh, there's a someone grabs a missile launcher, but they don't know how to use it. And so they stick it over their shoulder and you've seen movies like this, I'm guessing, and they pull the trigger and it fires uh, in the wrong direction. Well, God says Israel is like that, that, that he prepared and equipped them for battle to fight under his banner, and yet their wayward, misfiring lives, well, to be honest, it makes them more useful to the enemy. It's hard reading, isn't it? It's, it's, it's colourful, but it's damning. God calls Israel to true repentance. When when they turn away in their sin, God calls them to true repentance, not some fleeting, half-baked, superficial, hypocritical, self-serving counterfeit. He wants the real thing because he wants his people back. He wants their hearts. And Israel, when it came to repentance, Israel failed miserably. And because of that, God says his judgment is about to fall, and that's what chapter 8 is about. I'm just going to look at the first few verses there. Verse 1, we've heard these words before, put the trumpet to your lips. Put the trumpet to your lips, an eagle is over the house of the Lord. That eagle refers to Assyria, the great power in the north uh, that is poised to attack. And the reason is there, verse 1, because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. And verses 2 and 3 explain why judgment is about to fall. Israel has been living under a delusion. Verse 2, Israel cries out to me, our God, we acknowledge you. Verse 3, but Israel has rejected what is good. It's not genuine. It's not real. Their acknowledgement of God is skin deep it is lip service they have sown the wind and they will reap the whirlwind as it says in verse seven it's scary isn't it it's scary that a people could be so deluded i wonder if it scares you at all perhaps thinking that maybe you could be equally deluded you know I think there's a sense in which it should scare us. How do we know that we're not doing the same thing? And so how can we be sure that we'll avoid the same fate as Israel? You know, it's really tempting for me at this point to say 
But the answer to this, the way to be sure is, is to try harder, to work harder at your repentance. And there's something in that. Repentance is hard work. Uh, as we read back in verse 3 of chapter 6, let us press on to acknowledge him. And yet I think that if I just urged you to try harder and to look to yourself to solve this problem, you'd fall just as flat as Israel. Rather, I want to encourage you to where I think God's word encourages us to look, to motivate true repentance. It's not primarily or in the first instance about trying harder. There's a time for hard work in repentance, absolutely. But, but first of all, we have to see God's work on our behalf. See, if the people of Israel could hear this invitation to repentance and be expected to respond, well, how much more ought we to respond? We who understand what the gospel reveals about God's judgment, his mercy and his grace. We who are people of the cross and of the empty tomb. We who understand that our guilt and judgment have actually been borne by Jesus. So if you go back to those first few verses, you'll remember, you'll understand as you look at those verses that it was Jesus who was torn to pieces. And yet, as Isaiah says, by his wounds, we are healed. He was the one who was revived after two days and on the third day restored. And yet through his resurrection, we've received a new life that can be lived in God's presence without fear of condemnation or rejection. You see, the thing is, judgment alone could never lead us to love. Yes, God's judgment might serve his justice, and that would be a good thing. It might even produce a fearful conformity or, or an outward religion. But the judgment that our sins have received which is a vicarious and vindicating judgment, a judgment that though it was on our sin, didn't fall on us, but on Jesus. Well, surely that is a form of justice that is so transformed by mercy and grace and steadfast love that it can melt the hardest heart. Surely that kind of judgment can draw us all to genuine and joyful repentance so that the work of repentance, the pressing on of repentance, isn't something that is fleeting, isn't something that is half-hearted, isn't something that is half-baked, but rather something that comes from a truly transformed heart, a heart that has experienced God's love in Christ Jesus. Folks, he's the one we need to look to uh, to discover the source of true repentance. So I urge you to look to him in your life today, tomorrow, in the weeks ahead, that he might draw you back to God so that, we, you, so that you, so that we can live in his presence. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the one who was torn and broken and bled in our place. 
We thank you that the judgment that Israel deserved and the judgment that we deserved, in fact, the judgment of hell, the casting away from your presence forever, that that judgment has fallen on him. Father, please help us to grab hold of uh, your great love and forgiveness by faith in Jesus. We pray that you would break through our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh by the wonderful gift of your spirit who applies the gospel to our minds and hearts. And we pray that this would lead to a joyful hard work, joyful repentance, an awareness that no sin can keep us away from you if we will but turn back to you, turn back to you in faith and gratitude at your kindness to us in Jesus. We pray all of this that we might be a faithful and fruitful people loving you and loving each other as we live in the world until Jesus returns. And we pray in his name. Amen.